Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Jess Walter, the author of six books of fiction, including the National Book Award finalist, The Zero, and Citizen Vince, winner of 2005 Edgar Allan Poe Award for Best Novel. Jess Walter's nonfiction essays, short stories, criticism, and journalism have been widely published in Harper's, Esquire, McSweeney's, Playboy, and ESPN, the magazine, among others. He's here today on Between the Covers to talk about his new book, the New York Times bestseller, Beautiful Ruins, an epic novel that spans 50 years from the Italy of the 1960s to modern-day Los Angeles, a book that the Boston Globe describes as having the grand impulses of a cinematic blockbuster while also doubling as an elegant meditation on fame, desire, duty, and fate. Welcome to Between the Covers, Jess Walter. Thanks, David. So the opening scene, we, we end up in... Italy on the coast, 1962, yeah. and uh, hotel owner Pasquale is, right. he's dreaming of better times. Uh, uh, he wishes his town wasn't so inaccessible, that it had a beach, right. that it could attract foreigners, and somewhat mysteriously, a uh, possibly dying American actress from the set of Cleopatra ends up in his town, in his hotel, sort of a uh, against all odds. H- how yeah. did you how did you come up with that as the, as the opening image? And and, and despite the fact that you have all of these uh, points of view in the book, it does really feel like Pasquale and Dee, this actress, are the, are the glue. And I'm curious yeah. what drew you to that. Yeah, they're very much the soul of the story, certainly. Uh, you know, it was the very first image I had. I was, um, I was in the Cinque Terre in, the, in 1997 and, uh, and was just so, I thought, found it so devastatingly beauty, beautiful and, uh, and uh, remote. And, um, and the very first image I had was of this, uh, this woman arriving by boat. It's, uh, you know, these villages etched into the cliff face. You can only arrive by trail or by boat or by train now. And um, uh, so, yeah, it, it was sort of the first image I had of the book. And often I'll have an idea... Uh, I'll write some uh, scenes, some images, and I, and then the rest of the book is the process of discovering who those people are. Uh, when I got back from Italy, my mom was, had been diagnosed with cancer and died not long after. And so the very first idea was that I would write about a sick woman arriving in this village. Um, and I made her about my mom's age, and I put her um, in the early 60s when my mom would have been a young woman. Um, and that was the original impulse. Um, uh, and the book became something very different, but um, that idea of a woman who may or may not have cancer arriving in this small town um, was the thing that stuck. Later, I tr- um, as I often do, I, I would have this bit of writing that I liked, but I needed to now figure out who these people were. And so uh, I, for me, I realized that this woman was this, would be a character named Dee Murray and that um, I became interested in acting as a kind of art form. And so I wanted her to, to be an actress. Well, a lot of your books, if you look back at your career, seem to pick a pivotal moment in history, in American history often. So when I think of Citizen Vince in the 1980 presidential election, and then The Zero with 9-11, and and then your latest, your book before, Beautiful Ruins, Financial Lives of the Poets with the economic collapse. And so I was curious, is there something about 1962 that you see as a pivotal moment or was the pivotal moment more that personal one with your with your mom you know I think the original impulse was the was was um, that but but yeah I do think there's a pivotal moment the book really became for me I've, I've become so interested in the way I think we live outside our own existence we live a sort of shadow version of our lives uh, almost the platonic cave wall you know and 
Uh, and we do that, I think, because we're so influenced by Hollywood and by fame and by this idea of um, what other people think of us. And, and so many, and part of um, art and writing is to is that impulse to tell our own story. So uh, as I, I was sort of unraveling the Hollywoodization of Americans, um, everyone I think lives their own sort of version of fame. Um, and the way we live now seemed tied back to, uh, honestly, to, this, uh, to the movie Cleopatra. And this uh, character, Michael Dean, this producer, I, in, I imagined him as seeing himself as the inventor of the modern idea of fame. Uh, where where you could release a sex tape and be just as famous as if you'd won the Nobel Prize or more famous, you know. Uh, and so that, yeah, I think writing a novel about Hollywood, it, it definitely did be feel like a pivot moment. Well, it, it feels like with Cleopatra being so central to this yeah. book and such a huge budget film yeah. with like gigantic stars, yeah. Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, yeah. but really clear pretty soon in that the movie's bad. Oh, the movie's awful. Uh, it's, it's still the only movie to lead that year in, in the box office and still lose money. It was the number one box office film of the year, and it still lost $10 million at the box office that year. So it was a huge boondoggle. And is the pivotal moment that brings us through what the transformations that bring us to the Hollywood today the fact that they then strategize to find a way to sell the movie through scandal and through celebrity rather than through something with good content that is full of uh, good qualities? Well, uh, my, the, the artistic conceit I come up with is that they strategize, that that's indeed what happened. Um, the movie, by all rights, should have lost money. It's almost unwatchable, it's, uh, but it's such a train wreck that um, the character of Michael Dean, the producer that I create, um, has that epiphany that people love to watch train wrecks. And the movie actually ended up breaking even uh, over the long haul, it, mostly because people wanted to see this this couple and this torrid affair they were having, the marriages they destroyed, um, and that that did sort of seem to me to to almost be a direct line through the world we live now. You know that the that the Kardashians are children of that very film. And I, again, I think it's a kind of artistic conceit, but it's one of the jobs of the novelist to to pick a point and say, um, you know, that this for at least it's one of the jobs that is as I see a novelist uh, in the kind of books that I'm interested in writing. And I and maybe because of my journalism background, I am drawn, uh, as you said, to those moments, those sort of historical moments and how they connect with the way we live. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Jess Walter about his newest book, Beautiful Ruins. Jess, why don't we have you read a, um, a section of, of the book so sure. people can hear the press? Yeah. yeah, I'll read just from the beginning um, and then maybe jump ahead a little bit and read a quick description of that producer we talked about, Michael Dean. Right. Chapter One, The Dying Actress, April 1962, Port of Agonia, Italy. The dying actress arrived in his village the only way one could come directly in a boat that motored into the cove, lurched past the rock jetty, and bumped against the end of the pier. She wavered a moment in the boat's stern, then extended a slender hand to grip the mahogany railing. With the other, she pressed a wide-brimmed hat against her head. All around her, shards of sunlight broke on the flickering waves. Twenty meters away, Pasquale Tursi watched the arrival of the woman as if in a dream, or rather, he would think later, a dream's opposite a burst of clarity after a lifetime of sleep. Pasquale straightened and stopped what he was doing, what he was usually doing that spring, trying to construct a beach below his family's empty pensione. Chest deep in the cold Ligurian sea, Pasquale was tossing rocks the size of cats in an attempt to fortify the breakwater. 
to keep the waves from hauling away his little mound of construction sand. The town's name, Port of Agonia, meant port of shame and was a remnant from the founding of the village in the 17th century as a place for sailors and fishermen to find women of a certain moral and commercial flexibility. It was a tight cluster of a dozen old whitewashed houses, an abandoned chapel, and the town's only commercial interest, the tiny hotel and cafe owned by Pasquale's family, all huddled like a herd of sleeping goats in a crease in the sheer cliffs. Behind the village, the rocks rose 600 feet to a wall of black striated mountains. Below it, the sea settled in a rocky, shrimp-curled cove from which the fishermen put in and out every day. Isolated by the cliffs behind and the sea in front, the village had never been accessible by car, and so the streets, such as they were, consisted of a few narrow pathways between the houses, brick-lined roads skinnier than sidewalks, plunging alleys and rising staircases so narrow that unless one was standing in the Piazza San Pietro, the tiny town square, it was possible anywhere in the village to reach out and touch walls on either side. And then that the uh, character of Michael Dean, um, which I'll just read a real quick description of. And he's the Hollywood producer. He's the Hollywood producer. And they, the, there are two rails to the story. Um, one of them is uh, takes place in 1962 Italy. The other takes place in present-day Hollywood. Um, and that's where, um, that's where we meet this character, Michael Dean. Recently, Hollywood Hills, California. The dean of Hollywood reclines in silk pajamas on a chaise on his lanai, sipping a fresco with ginseng and looking out over the trees to the glittering lights of Beverly Hills. The first impression one gets of Michael Dean is of a man constructed of wax, or perhaps prematurely embalmed. After all these years, it may be impossible to trace the sequence of facials, spa treatments, mud baths, cosmetic procedures, lifts and staples, collagen implants, outpatient touch-ups, tannings, Botox injections, cyst and growth removals, and stem cell facial injections that have caused a 72-year-old man to have the face of a 9-year-old Filipino girl. Trying to picture what Michael Dean looked like as a young man in Italy 50 years ago, based on his appearance now, is like standing on Wall Street trying to understand the topography of Manhattan Island before the Dutch arrived. That's actually a really great juxtaposition, those, those, oh, two, those yeah. two sections and difference yeah. in style and tone. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that is something that really jumps out about Beautiful Ruins for me is, is it's really, in one level, a really experimental book because we have tons of different POVs or points of view. Yes, we right. we uh, jump into um, different time frames. We go into a lot of different voices with there's a section that's part of a, of a novel. There's mm-hmm. a section that's part of an unpublished memoir. Right. And we're in a movie uh, pitch. A movie yeah, pitch. Right. We're in Idaho. We're in Los Angeles. We're in Italy. We're yeah. in England. And um, yet at the same time, even though you're you're um, doing all of these different things, it feels like the book is imminently readable and accessible. So it feels oh, like on you. one level, you're doing a lot of um, postmodern self-reference, yeah. and yet it feels like it has, you could read it, I think, and not know that you were experiencing that at the same time, which that felt like a magic trick a little oh, bit. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I think that was my challenge always was, um, uh, I felt like the story itself was fairly simple. It's a man, um, Pasquale, going to look for a woman he hasn't seen in almost 50 years. And I had two challenges. One f- for me in the narrative was to 
have the moment between he and D be so powerful that in my own mind, I believed that it would bring him back. Um, but in a, in a larger way, I think for me, the, um, the all when I came up with the title Beautiful Ruins, I realized that the book was made up of artifacts and ruins and bits and pieces of different things. And to make all of those contribute to the narrative in a way um, and to have and to, to retain a kind of overall larger voice that made the whole thing come together. Uh, and I think the you know, for me, unlike anything I've ever done, this book, uh, pulls together because of the ending, and the and um, I had I had discovered a, an epigraph by um, uh, uh, by Milan Kundera, which um, was there would be there was there would be nothing more obvious, more tangible than the present moment, and yet it eludes us completely. All the sadness of life lies in that fact, and that quote sort of drove me through the writing of the book because I I imagined all these different stories, all these different places, almost occurring at once almost like a great film montage or something. And because the book owes so much to film, um, you know, I think that was the, um, the idea that pushed me through. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the film montage because it feels like it has the, the epic quality of, of a Hollywood yeah, film, yeah. but it doesn't have a Hollywood ending. Like right. it doesn't have that right. pat right. Um, ending at the, at the end, but yeah. um, it does feel like in scope, that yeah. it's oh, it's thanks. something that would yeah yeah that I you know I think again it's so it you know I started in ni- 1997 and wrote five other novels in the time that I finished it so um, it 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 evolved into in so many different ways some of them surprising to me but there was a point when I realized that that um, that the book was about film as much as it's about anything about that style of storytelling and so I think it really did bleed into. Um, you know, the way it feels, you know, there, uh, I, th- I felt like there were scenes that I was writing that felt almost like they had a washed out, you know, quality of old film and others that felt so sharp and, um, and almost digital in some way, you know? And so, yeah, it, it, uh, uh, I always find it interesting how some of that stuff bubbles up in t- into your subconscious or your unconscious or wh- wherever it bubbles and, and works its way into the, into the narrative itself. Well, you'd mentioned the, the you were discovering different meanings for the title "Beautiful yeah. Ruins," and and you have the epigraph at the beginning that I describes do. Richard Burton, who is actually a character in this book. Right. He's described in an interview as as a beautiful ruin. Right. And yeah. then obviously we have a whole bunch of other resonances. We have the, among others, the fading yeah. town in Italy. We sure. have the possibly dying actress. Yeah. We have Hollywood itself. Right. Which, and, I, which and, I think of as as our ruin. It is you know it 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 is our. Uh, uh, you know, it is our our Greek or Roman ruins. You know, it's the thing we export. These big stories we tell. You know, we are the entertainer of the world. And so, yeah, no, I, I unlike any other title I've had, when I came across that quote in about two thousand nine, two thousand eight, I it floored me because I went back and looked at the book, and I I felt as if. I've never felt as if there was a title out there that when I came across it, it belonged on the novel, but this one it did. You know, it just felt like that's what this book was about, where um, these characters as ruins, as, as more interesting versions of themselves, despite the mistakes and troubles they've made, as the the stories themselves being ruins, and as you say, you know, cult, the cultural ruins, you know, the um, from Hollywood to, um, you know, in every direction. Well, on the on the flip side of the the beautiful ruin equation yeah. is the fact that all of these characters are dreamers. Yeah, uh, it seems like almost everybody in the book has a beautiful 
dream. Yeah. And they all, in the end, get downsized. So yeah. we have the glamorous actress who ends up in community theater in Idaho, right, of all right. places. Yeah. We have unfinished novels and unpublished memoirs. Yeah. And a lot of, and also people who have the image of a great love settling yeah. for an acceptable love, right. for instance. Right. Right. Now, what is compelling about that idea of the of the downsized dream for yeah. you that seems to really run through this book, and maybe in a way your your last book as well? Yeah, I, I, it's funny that you that you describe it that way. I guess I w- wouldn't see it as downsized dreams. I would see it as, um, uh, you know. Th- for instance, Pasquale, who dreams of building a tennis court on the cliffside, and it's a and you know it's such an unlikely, impossible thing to do. Um, and I do think that I do think the characters are driven, you know, by um, by these dreams that are unattainable. But I I kind of feel like that's the nature of dreams; they have to be unattainable, and it's the lives they make of themselves afterward. A character like Pat Bender, who dreams of being a rock star his whole life, um, and by the end settles for a tentative survival, um, which seems to me such a great honorable place to arrive that it's not a defeat it's not a diminishment um, it's that phrase that Wallace Stegner used crossing to safety um, and I think sometimes our dreams are things we have to cross over um, to find a reality that can be every bit as um, rewarding and um, without giving too much away for me Pasquale is the nature of that choice and the choice he makes um, is not the traditional um, romantic choice that we would imagine and yet I think it's every bit as rewarding and more so than that would be and and that was always you know I always felt as if Pasquale was um, you know was the character around whom the rest of this there there isn't a traditional protagonist I don't think in this book Um, maybe Michael Dean he's the one who drives the action but for but for Pasquale I was most interested in that um, in that choice and that moment he has when he realizes his life is two lives, the one he leads and the one he'll always wonder about. Um, and I think that I just, I suppose I'm drawn to those kinds of stories because they, they strike a chord of truth in me. And I would say that's probably the core of why it's not a Hollywood book in the sense yeah. they're not all ending up triumphalistically right. Uh, right. successful in the end. Yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're talking with author Jess Walter about his latest book, Beautiful Ruins. This is Between the Covers. A way in which the um, the going through the dream and mm-hmm. finding uh, a life that's maybe um, both more satisfying and more mature, but s- smaller also sure. felt like it resonated for me around the economic yeah. uh, collapse. And I, I, that's recently going on. And I know yeah. you've been writing this book for uh, 16 years yeah. or something? 15. 15 yeah. years? Yeah. So is that is that something I'm reading into the book? Or is that sort of thing where things are contracting did that play some role on the way the themes played out? Yeah, I think it, I, I feel like we are post-empire in America. Uh, and so more even than the financial uh, crisis, which to me is is a contract uh, contracting that has to happen um, and has to happen in many different ways and has happened in Europe. You know, I think um, uh, Italians are very familiar with that, with the idea of those things, um, uh, you know, maybe shrinking in that way. So yeah, uh, but it also feels true again you know I, I I think so much of this is driven by your outlook on life and I tend to see life as difficult and funny and and in equal measures and to love where those things intersect and um, and try to create characters who have great humor but also suffer through disappointment um, but yeah I you know having having gone through 
uh, you know, written a novel, The Financial Lives of the Poets, which is directly related to that, um, I think you carry those those ideas along with you. Um, but I also think that the that you know the the place that the characters end up is has almost nothing to do with our moment in history, but more, again, the, what I view as human nature, you know, that, um, uh, you know, the, the, the way in which our dreams um, compel us not to the thing that we think we're getting, but to something else, you know, um, and, and for so many of these characters, it's this state of, uh, of self-destruction that they, that they are able to find their way through or, um, yeah, or lost love or disappointment. Um, and to come out the other side is where I'm interested in them. Well, it's really fascinating in this tension for me in the book also, because so, so far we've talked about ruins and we've talked about yeah. disappointment and yeah. my version of downsized dreams. <laughs> right. But really the book feels really sweet and optimistic in some respects too. And you mentioned the humor. And one of the ways in which the book is really funny is that dissonance between the reality of life and then the positive spin of, of Hollywood. So, right. And the right. positive spin also resonates against the more earnest dreams of some of these characters. Right. Because we basically with the positive spin when you're making a pitch for a script, right. um, is really about taking something that's maybe not so good and making it seem better, which yeah. is what's happening with Cleopatra. Sure, yeah. And also with one of the characters when he's trying to sell his uh, yeah. spin on the cannibal story. Right, yeah, there's a character trying to sell a, a Donner, a movie about the Donner party. Yeah, it's um, it's funny because some people describe this as a Hollywood novel or a Hollywood satire, and it does satirize Hollywood, but uh, I, I feel like Hollywood reflects us back to ourselves. And it, and it is an incredibly cynical, place but it's the most hopeful place and and I think there is great hope in the book and in the characters and in their um, constant drive to chase after these things and you know and and I find great hope in humor I mean I that that's um, for me that's that that's the redemption of so much of what we do is that um, you know our our vanities and our and our drives are I think by nature comedic and funny. And, um, and so as a comic novelist to be able to, um, puncture those vanities without ever co condescending to the characters. And, um, I remember reading about an author once that he loves his characters more than God himself. And I think that's one of the jobs of the author is, um, you're going to put these th people through their paces by nature. Um, the novelist is drawn to writing about the hardest time in someone's life, the biggest challenge, the deepest conflict. Um, and so to, to, you know, to not care for those characters in a way that, um, that you want the best for them and you, uh, you know, seems it, you know, it seems almost cruel at some level. Are there any specific books you were going to and reading when writing Beautiful Ruins, looking for some qualities? You know, I, I have to confess that I was um, I was so blown away reading Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell. And it's a technical thing he does in there. Um, I would be, if you don't know that book, it's a Russian nesting doll, story inside a story inside a story. So you just fall in love with the story and all of a sudden you'd have to go to another story. And that, 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 process of 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 leaving a story and going to another one and then falling so in love with that story you didn't want to go to the next one was so interesting to me to see how it deepened um, the respect I had for the story and it and and it you know made those stories resonate in some way uh, so I I remember finishing that and thinking oh in each of these pieces if if I can push the reader 
a little bit and test them then when they come back to the story and i and and you you know i also thought i need this to to cohere more than than maybe that book did you know which i i think it's brilliant it's but it but it those stories um connect in very loose ways i wanted this to connect very directly so that certainly that had some influence um you know i i read uh you know i, I read all sorts of hollywood books and uh you know, books about Richard Burton and, um, you know, uh, and about various producers and Robert Evans' uh, uh, autobiography was great fun to read, and, um, you know, books about Italy and little bits here and there. But I think that larger structural thing from Mitchell's book was, um, you know, was probably the, the thing that, you know, pushed me to keep going. And he took that structure from Calvino, so right, in a, yeah, in yeah. a way, it's right. it's, it's well, echoing, and, echoing right. even further. And, and as a novelist, I mean, the, all you have to do is read, uh, you know, Tristram Shandy and uh, and uh, Don Quixote and see nothing. You know, everything that could be done was done, like you know, right away. Right. So all all the great, you know. Um, postmodern uh, tricks, all the great metafictional tricks, you know, any effect that you can create um, is only an effect. In the end, you have to, you have to hope people connect emotionally with the book. Um, and to do that, I think you have to connect emotionally with it, you know, to, to write at sentiment without ever, um, without ever dipping into sentimentality, hopefully. You used to be a journalist, and, and you mentioned you mentioned researching stuff around Hollywood and around Italy. Yeah. Uh, do you find that you you tap into your past as a journalist in some way in the writing process? Yeah, I'm sure I do. You know, it's so you've only ever written the way you've written, so um, I can't look at at uh, Jess Walter, the MFA student, because he doesn't exist. But um, but yeah, I I know I'm driven by you know I still feel like I have to sort of deliver the news with novels you know which is how you end up writing a novel centered around terrorist attacks and how you end up writing a novel about the um, uh, you know the financial crisis so part part of it is that but it's also this innate curiosity which is what I loved about journalism you get curious about something and I let my curiosity drive drive the novel now I get interested in Richard Burton I start researching it next thing I know Richard Burton is in my novel you know um, um, I, I go to the Edinburgh Film Festival and or Fringe Festival, and um, my curiosity drives me to explore Edinburgh, and then my characters go there. And that that part of writing is so, so thrilling and such great fun, and not knowing where it's going to lead. Um, yeah, I, 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 and I do like to immerse myself the way I did as a journalist. Uh, there are a lot of habits you have to forget as a journalist too, but I look back on it um, as such an amazing training ground, and it was... Uh, I liken it to playing in a bar, playing piano in a bar. I didn't get to pick the songs I played. Um, I had to pull them out of the jar that the editors gave me. But I felt I, when I was done, I felt like I could play a lot of different things. You've talked in interviews about earlier in your career interviewing authors when they came to yeah, town when you were yeah. a journalist. And you'd always ask the question, maybe because you wanted the answer for yourself as a writer, what advice do you have for a young writer? And your book is really populated with um, people who are trying to establish themselves right. as writers. And I, and I actually wondered in reading it if somehow the book was answering that question for you. Uh, I was curious, what would your advice be for your characters, yeah. how, for Alvis, who's trying to write a novel, or yeah. or for for D in terms of establishing yeah, that's their a, writing? That's a wildly perceptive uh, thing to note because yeah, I um, because I I started this in '97 before I'd published any novels, before I'd published any short stories, and in a way, when I look at it, you know, I see the track of my 
career as a writer in all those different forms um, that I tried. And, um, you know, the, the, the character of Alva Spender, who's a writer who can't finish more than the first chapter of the novel of a novel came about because I was stuck on the first chapter of this novel for so long that I invented a character who was in the same predicament I was in. Uh, and I did as a young writer, um, Tom Wolfe came to my hometown and Ken Kesey and, and my hero, Kurt Vonnegut. And, um, and I would pose as a, as an, as a working journalist to try to ask them my, you know, and, and I, I don't think I was serious about the question, you know, what advice would you give to a young writer? I, I kept hoping that something would just rub off on me or that being in the same room or that their agent would, you know, spot me and say, well, there's clearly a writer, you know, I can tell by his dripping sensitivity or something. (laughs) Um, But looking back on it, you know, the best advice I can give to a young writer is to age, (laughs) you know, to, and to stay with it, you know, that um, the chops I developed as a writer, you know, and I spent seven years writing short stories, getting none of them published. I wrote two novels that didn't get published. Uh, And for me, the most thrilling and encouraging thing is that I is that I kept getting better the more sentences I put down I kept getting better and I think there are so many parallels to music and we don't think of it that way all the time but you would never imagine a musician stepping up and just playing something beautiful I mean a Mozart comes around you know once in a generation or whatever but for the most of us we have to just keep playing and getting our chops as a musician and um, so I, I would tell young writers to strike out with, on every piece they write as imagining it's going to be great, um, but having the patience and resolve to keep going when maybe it isn't. Well, it's great having you on between the covers today, Jess. Yeah, thank you, David. We've been talking today with Jess Walter, the author of Beautiful Ruins. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.